Welcome back to Following Know It On, a Stormlight podcast. This week is episode 43, and we have three interludes to do at between parts four and part five of Words of Radiance. We're also tacking on chapter 76 uh, in starting part five to this uh, to this episode. Interludes means that Tim is back joining us uh, once again. Uh, how are you doing, Tim? I'm doing fantastic. I'm excited to join you guys. Glad to have you back. Uh, Paul, how are you? Doing good. It's been a good week. Ready to start part five finally. Yeah. And Elliot. Doing great. End of the book is is in sight. We're going to be there pretty soon. We will. Paul, do you have two words to summarize uh, episode 43, our interludes and our plus one chapter? I do. So my two words for this week are acceptance and intellect. Acceptance and intellect. Two good words. Okay. Elliot? We we have another one where we're very close. Uh, my two words were emotions and intelligence. Emotions and intelligence. Intellect. And what was your other word, Paul? I don't remember. Acceptance. Acceptance. All right. Let's use these words and talk about this week's episode. All right, Paul, talk to me about acceptance and how that applies. Yeah, so acceptance is honestly, I was mostly thinking about our, our interlude with Tervangina and Zeph. Okay. Um, it's a little, I, I'm going out on a limb slightly. I, my summary of that is that Zeph is like jumping very quick to accept things, but I don't fully know that. I'm kind of assuming he's accepting it, whether or not I know for sure he has, but he kind of comes with questions and I feel like leaves a lot with acceptance, um, whether or not it's justified. Um, that was the primary reason. Um, and then as well as intellect is also kind of for that. That's kind of our big right. <laughs> focus. I, I, I think on this episode is going to be that interlude. Um, I think, I think Zeth wants to, accept what he hears without thinking about it too much because that's what he uh, he's being told what he wants to hear so he doesn't question it too much uh your other word Mm -hmm. intellect yes it's mostly for teravangian and his um diagram yes um how his like intelligence varies at times and you know brilliant days and dumb days things like that um also with with elliot um I, I was almost trying to get the same words, like on a, not super intentionally, but I was like, it's very comp pop. Like, I would very easily believe it if we both had like an intelligence and intellect one there. So, my guess is that that's what your intelligence word is for as well. Yep, absolutely. That that was an obvious one for this this section. I felt like so much revolved around that new bit of information there about Teravangian. So had, had to reference that somehow. And then my other word was emotions. 
because there's an interesting comparison between intelligence and emotion in this section, which is really fascinating. Almost this like insinuation that they're like part of a sliding scale, like the more intelligence you have, the less emotion you have, and the more emotion you have, the less intelligence you have, which like that that's very interesting to me and how it affects these characters, but even more interesting on like the grander scale or, or philosophical question about it. So those are my two. Cool. Before we get to uh, Teravangian and then later chapter 76, we do have two shorter, shorter interludes, which we'll touch on pretty quick here. If you guys have specifics you want to talk about in here, go ahead and hop in. But we start with interlude 12. It's titled Lawn. And it's about an ardent and, well, it's about two ardents actually, back in Kolinar. And Kolinar is under the reign of Queen Asudon, who is the wife of Elokar. We haven't met her yet. And so the, our first impression here is not the greatest. And we've, we're, we're getting some very interesting information about what's going back or what's happening back in Kolinar at the moment. So long story short, this ardent calls out the Ardentia and the royalty of Kolinar for being, well, all sorts of different things, but too lazy is just one of them. And uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Somebody help me out here. Just all around terrible people. True. I was gonna say just like rotten, like I don't like kind of a facade. Right. Like faking that it's good. And then she withholding because they don't like help people. Yeah. They've got a whole bunch of food that just sits and goes to waste because nobody wants nobody cares enough to hand it out to people. And it just sits there and rots and nobody cares. Uh, did did anybody be whoa? Did anybody want to pick this up and talk about it a little bit? I I couldn't help but think, and try. I, all we know about Asadan so far, right, is wife of Elokar, who we already don't have a super high opinion of Elokar. We thought he was a bad ruler. Turns out, from what we've seen so far, Asadan is an even worse, perhaps. Um, but the only other thing we know about her is going all the way back to the prologue. I actually just remembered this. Yeah, keep going. Yasna was trying to assassinate her that night, correct? Correct. That was the big, big you know, question mark coming out of that, that prologue chapter was why in the world is Yasna trying to get rid of her? And this is maybe a, our first hint towards something like that. I mean, perhaps she's, that terrible of a person that Yasna wanted her out of their family's life, perhaps, but yeah, not sure. I did just remember, yeah, that that's our only other real reference to Asadon. We've heard her name a couple times, but the only other time we've actually talked about her is when Yasna was arranging to assassinate her and didn't quite go through with it that night, but was about to. Right. True. And with that, so 
like honestly, first time going through this, I didn't really pick up on that. Um, and I, I feel like we still don't know the full significance there. Um, honestly, what I took the most from this interlude was kind of just showing like the like more corrupt behavior or lack of like initiative with like the Ardentia and, and things like that. We have our like young Ardent there, I believe who it was. Um, there's kind of like the the one who's there like learning about it and like why is no one doing anything and the other who's like why are you so worried about it right um and i feel like it kind of just showcased like that like evilness or like lack of good will there um but i didn't take a whole lot from this chapter other than that um it almost felt like a little world building interlude partly yeah, I felt like it all kind of boiled down to, oh, things are not going so great back in in Coldenar, basically. Right. The last sentence I, of the the last sentence of the interlude is, riots are starting in yeah in Colinar. So, just so just so the reader knows that not everything is going well back home. The only other thing I thought in this chapter was, I feel like Kaladin would be proud of this young ardent you know standing up against the institution of light eyes and this corrupt government and and trying to make a difference it felt like a very kaladin thing to do true tim yeah for me the re-reader perspective is just more some of the philosophical sides of things where um she suggests that, you know, maybe the hierarchy wasn't so bad an idea, whereas what we've seen with Kaladin and other things that's so ingrained in their society is this was pure evil. Um, having uh, this, this church being in charge of things. And then, um, I don't know, she's just realizing that, you know, the Lydas aren't somehow inherently better people because they're not part of you know a church or one thing or the other not saying that you know we here now should you know follow exactly what they're doing but just just thoughts of um when we you create something new you know people tend towards towards chaos and towards um you know when you have have nicer things you get used to them and your life becomes about keeping those things um and so over time societies go towards this where the elite are looking out for themselves and uh, taking advantage of everyone and so just thinking more about um more philosophical philosophical side of things of okay so is there one way that is somehow better Maybe so, maybe not. Um, but considering that for my own life is one of the one of the interesting parts that came up. Gotcha. Anyone else? Any more thoughts on Interlude Twelve? I think it's clever uh, when when Lon asks, "You won't get the other Ardents into trouble." 
My problem is not with the other Ardents, she said, offering a hand to help him to his feet. I will simply try to be a good example for all to follow. Mm. Kind of clever. Yeah. I think that Pi, our, uh, our young Ardent here, was more than a little angry because she what she did didn't she like paint a bunch of like essays on the temple or something at the end of the chapter yeah the area where people would come in for like public audiences or something like that um so where she knew people would see it listing out all of the reasons she saw why their queen was terrible and a horrible person and a fool she also she lists out all of the comparisons of the queen to the ten fools which we've heard that mentioned before the ten fools but we don't really know like what that means i think we've even gotten a few names maybe of some of the 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 ten fools along the way mm-hmm. but that that was was one thing in this chapter i noted it's not a new question of mine because we've we've heard it before but i am still curious about who these 10 fools are our last reference we had of the 10 fools was kaladin jumping into the arena and adolin turns to him and asks him yo what are you doing here and kaladin replies oh i'm playing one of the 10 fools and then adolin replies oh yeah welcome to the party i do find it interesting that um, a lot of this book is 10 is an important number to the people of this world. Yeah. Something that sticks out to me. Yeah. Every single time I see 10, I think of it's like, okay, this is just the heralds, right? Like it yeah. has to be, um, or like there's 10 orders of the Knights Radiant, right? Like, yeah, just kind of perfectly balanced 10, like. So yeah, I definitely see that, Tim. All right. Interlude 13. We have an Eshenai chapter. It's a very short chapter. And, well, I'll I'll say what I got from this this interlude at the end, but did anybody want to talk about this one for a little bit? I didn't honestly get too much out of this. It's just Eshenai talking with her sister Venley for a little bit. We get more references to the voice of reason or the old Eshenai that's, that's still within her somewhere screaming out. Um, maybe the biggest things I noted from this, this chapter were just that Eshenai is noticing something's strange about Venley. It's, it's not that she's acting different. It's that she's acting the same. It's that Venley, everyone else seems so changed by this new storm form and Venley seems not changed. And Eshenai is kind of wondering like, why is that? And I'm wondering the same, I, I guess maybe the implication, I don't know if Eshenai thinks this out loud, but like, has she been in storm form before or what, like why is she so in tune with this new form of anger and violence than the rest of them that doesn't seem like a good thing one one thing i want to ask 
I guess to clarify, like that's something I never thought of. By the way, Elliot, like, what if Venley has had Stormform before or has like a better grip on it or things like that? Venley was the one who was like the most skeptical of it, right? Like, whenever they were arguing, like, is this what we're gonna do? Was was Venley the one? I I don't remember for sure. So, no, to to answer shortly, but some of the um some of the parshendi have already fl- fled uh they wouldn't they were so skeptical of it that they didn't follow Eshenai to take it they literally just deserted so venli is somewhere in the middle of uh acceptance of it but also not super changed by it i don't remember her rhetoric early on if if she was trying to talk Eshenai in, or yeah talk Eshenai into it or she was the one that told Eshenai about it, isn't she? She is. Yeah, Venley was the one like leading up all the research out this form, and, and she wanted to transform into it first. But then Eshenai was the one that was like, "No, I'm I'm the most responsible. I'm gonna I'm gonna take it." So Venley was definitely the one like championing championing this new storm form is is the answer. This is the the solution. What I what I got from these from this interlude specifically, and then I'll throw it over to Tim real quick, is on from a rereader's perspective, I just wanted to highlight the amount of discord and distrust that's among the Parshendi in these uh, in these episodes. That uh, Eshenai is suspicious, like Elliot, you were saying, of her own sister, of how she's acting, and in the interlude before, we saw Parshendi deserting. Um, leaving their homes and fleeing, even though uh, they the Alethi might try to chase them, because um, that's where, why they're hiding here in the first place is to hide from the Alethi. But they're so scared of this storm form that they're just leaving. So, what I what I picked up on this read is how 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 much or how much of the the storm form is causing politics, I guess you could say, uh, in uh, in with the Parshendi. Tim, did you get anything? Yeah, one of the things that stood out to me is just the first two sentences at the very beginning of this. It, I mean, it looks like this screaming is becoming more common and more prevalent. It's like it's growing stronger. Um, that was that was very interesting to me. And um, once again, just. Shanae seems to, sorry, uh, Venli seems to know no more than she's letting on. And Eshenai, uh is playing the general, what she never wanted to do, as she says here. Um, but she's doing it, and she's doing it presumably effectively, um, becoming a, a better tactician. You know, we've learned earlier in, in these books that the Parshendi never really changed their tac- tactics the whole time, but now she's starting to really understand a lot more about what's what's going on, how to better fight this war. They know that the storm that they can summon at any time is going to blow opposite of high storms. And 
the reason why Eshenai kind of turns to Venli and says, "Wait, are you sure?" And Eshenai or Venli says, "Yeah, the old, the old songs say it will. So, of course it will." And then uh, I don't remember if it's Venli or Eshenai kind of muse for a second, and they say, "Or is it every other storm has blown the wrong way, and this one's going to blow the right way?" Anybody, anybody, pick up that. I, I definitely noticed that I don't know if I have any more to add than I I'll add my own question mark to, to that like huh right what <laughs> interesting any more thoughts on 13 it was pretty short yeah it was very short Now for the not short one, uh, interlude 14, we get uh, quite a bit of information about Taravangian and his motives and Zeth and his motives. So we've got quite a few questions answered, actually. I feel like we got more questions answered than questions offered in this in this interlude, dare I say. Uh, I don't know when the last time that happened. Right. I don't know when the last time that happened was, but... Mm-mm. Uh, Paul, we can start with you. Did you did you like this interlude? First of all, on my first read, I remember specifically not caring about Teravangian's motives. I just wanted, I, I was still on the emotional high of the end of Way of Kings and thought Teravangian was the worst person in the world. So, did you, as a first reader, did you care about what Teravangian's doing here at all? I definitely did care a lot. Um. I would be lying if I said that once Zeth entered the scene, my interest wasn't peaked a lot more. I don't know if that statement made, made, statement made sense. But um, I wasn't like super excited. But since it was long and it was about Terrangian, I knew there was going to be something important, so I was very invested in it. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely don't think it disappointed. For an interlude, it felt... Like a very direct, like you said, it answered a lot of questions instead of just providing them. Um, I was also going to say, be careful with your words, because I feel like you can never doubt us to just come up with more questions. True. Um, for stuff. But um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this chapter. I think I was pretty invested okay. in it for a first time reader. We're pretty excited about it. I'm going to toss it to Tim first because i know elliot can talk for about half an hour straight on this one so i'll go tim first and then we'll we'll jump over to elliot well there are a lot of exciting things that happen in this chapter uh but having read this book a number of times uh, one of the things that stuck out to me on this this reread and has done so before is uh when um i'll just read this part here She nodded, moving off to do as he commanded. She hesitated at the flaps to their temporary tent. We might have to reassess our methods of determining your intelligence. What I have seen in the last hour makes me question whether average can be applied to you today. The assessments are not inaccurate, he said. You simply underestimate the average man. And I found that quite powerful and and interesting. 
an insight worth considering. Um, I just graduated with a college degree and in some circles, if you don't have a college degree, you're essentially dismissed as stupid. Um, and then in some circles, if you do have a college degree, then you're dismissed as, you know, being less down to earth or understanding of reality. Right. And just realizing that, um, from our situations, perspectives, um, they, they change how we think about the world, but the average person is generally better than we give them credit for. So I, I really, that part really stuck out to me this time. And then, um, I'm a little, a little bit behind you guys, but I just listened to a lot of the, the podcasts up before the, the last interludes. And, um, I thought it was quite nice that we we get to learn a little bit more about High Prince Valum's uh, bastard son. Like, you do get to learn more about him. There you go. Yeah. I always thought the, the tests to figure out if Teravangian was coherent that day or not was was an interesting and flawed system because they they say specifically that if he's too dumb then he can't make any big decisions. And if he's too smart, he can't make any good, like big decisions because he once tried to pass a law that said like, if you're too dumb, you're not allowed to have children because they'll be dumb. Like smart terror engine tried to pass that law. And so they, they made a, they made a rule that if he was too smart, he couldn't, he couldn't rule that day. But if he realizes halfway through the test that he's smart, can't he just get all the, like, at a certain point, can he just start failing the test so he can rule that day and then ignore the, the thing? Like, I feel like this is a flawed system, but I will now turn it over to Elliot because I you can't, you guys can't see it on the podcast, but he has uh, almost a full page of, of notes here, and that's not even his personal notes. That's just his community notes that he wrote on the, time, on the outline here, so... Go ahead, Elliot, and we will chime in. Alrighty. I loved this chapter. This was fantastic. This was by far the most intriguing. Not not the most exciting, not the most relatable, not the most like interesting, but the most intriguing chapter, I think, by far in this this book uh, as a whole. Lots of lots of new information, lots of new to add to our little diagram we're trying to put together to, to hmm. figure out this this world. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed this chapter and, and did take a, a lot of notes on it. I actually found the whole concept actually to be really fascinating. This, this concept that he wakes up every day with a different level of intelligence. That's, that's such an, such a weird, weird thought. And like bizarre, but yet at the same time not completely unrelatable. Like, right? I don't know about you guys, but I've I've rolled out of bed some days and just you feel like you're in a fog like all day, and you're just like, man, this is dumb. And then other days you you jump out of bed and you're like, I'm ready to go. Let's do this. And so, like, not nearly on the, like the extreme that Teravangian is is feeling it, but like 
yeah, maybe maybe in a small way, this is this is all of us, right? He's just Tervangian just has it kind of exaggerated, I guess. I don't know. I, I wanted your guys' take on even just that, like that creative writing concept in in general. It always just made me think of, okay, so what happens when Tervangian on a smart day he just tries to stay awake? What happens then? You know, like does he just pass out at midnight? Is it like Cinderella? <laughs> you know, like. What what is what's the rule? What are the rules here? What if he just tries to stay up for forty eight hours and keep smart Teravangian and skip the dumb Teravangian? What like? It's a good question. What are the rules here? Like, is it just like a like a true day by day thing? Like, like at midnight, like the stroke of twelve, he'll like gain a bunch of intelligence or lose a bunch or like, yeah, very undefined rules there, I guess. Um, and very peculiar thing, like. I, I didn't fully know what to make of it. I kind of just brushed through it, like listening to the audiobook. Like, okay, cool. Like, <laughs> weird flex, but okay. He just like changes intelligence every day. Like, all right, kind of awkward, but and and we learn that he got this from the Night Watcher, which right. more and more characters seem to now have visited or interacted with the the night watcher now which is which is fascinating we get we get like i think the most detail we've seen from anyone who's visited the night watch like he very clearly says this is what he was given by the night watcher and he says whether we can take his word for it or not what he asked for he says he asked for capacity what was it Cap- capacity is the word he used but he's with like, a capital c to save the world yeah. And, and and this is what he was given, this this variable intelligence, but then it's tied somehow to this emotion as well. He keeps referencing like compassion and emotion. It's hard it's hard to tell if like that is his curse and and, and blessing. Like blessed with intelligence but cursed with the emotion where he like feels terrible about all the stuff he's doing or is like the the swing between emotion and intelligence the blessing and we don't know what the actual curse was i couldn't quite put it all together but we there was a lot of information there more than we've seen from a lot of the other characters like like dalinar for instance right do we know that dalinar went to the night watch do we know that Mm-hmm. We know that we know he's. I don't want to spoil anything. I'm just. I'm. Just, I, that's why I'm prodding. I'm like, what do we? What do we know? I'm. I'm very like 99 percent sure we know that at some point he has. Right. We don't. We, we don't know like incidents of what's happened, but if if I remember right, we know that he has gone to the Night Watcher, and we know that it somehow has to do with his wife. With it his wife. It has to somehow do right. with his wife's mm-hmm. name that he can't hear. We, we don't know if, like, we're assuming that he can't hear her name because of the Night Watcher, but we don't know if that was the curse or if that was the blessing. Right. A lot of unknowns there, but but somehow Dalinar was there. Mm-hmm. Teravangian, we get a lot more info on. Teravangian says that his his blessing is the capacity to save the world. Is that correct? So he says that's what he asked for. And then he mentions blessed with intelligence, cursed with compassion. But 
that's it's hard to tell if he's kind of saying that figuratively or if he literally means that's, you know, exactly what I was blessed with and exactly what I was cursed with. I just also, wanna... Go ahead, Tim. Um, yeah, I was just going to hop in the boat with you on... He says it's what he's blessed with, but he got them both at the same time. He doesn't really know which is a blessing, which is a curse. Because um, you can take it both ways, depending on how you think about it. Right. I just want to highlight how Teravangian is viewed from the rest of the world, like it, from the rest of Roshar. Everybody views Teravangian as the nice old grandpa king who funds a bunch of hospitals and cares about the people. And as if you're sick, you go to Carbranth. Or if you want to learn surgery you go to Carbranth and they will teach you how to care for the sick. Like that's how, that's how people view Teravangian as the compassionate, you know, the, the, the herald of, I shouldn't use that word, but the, uh, the champ, the champion of like health and hospitals and that type of thing. And Teravangian would probably say on a good day, say that was his curse that, that, if he's compassionate towards people like that. So it it also explains a bit of the confusion we got in some of the Shalon chapters back in Way of Kings because there was there was a bit of a bit of like conflicting evidence where Teravangian is known as like this compassionate king who's also maybe like a little slow-witted. He like, you know, doesn't keep up with other people and then when Shalon meets him, she's like, "Oh, this isn't this guy's not dumb. Like this guy's really smart, you know?" Right. So that this this explains that he he's known to the people by his you know maybe less intelligent days but then he chose a day where he was more intelligent to go interact with yasna and and shalon so makes sense now right the the blessing that he gets the capacity to save the world as he says it and we're assuming he gets it because he writes he draws the diagram writes the diagram whatever verb you want to put there I just want to stop on this concept for a second because the Night Watcher, who we don't know too much about, is gifting Teravangian with the capacity to save the world. But we don't know which side the Night Watcher is on. We don't know which side Teravangian is on. What does save the world, quote unquote, mean? You know? Like, by whose definition? Is this is this the Night Watcher's definition of saving the world? Is this Teravangian's definition of saving the world? Is this Honor's definition? Is it Odium's definition? We don't, like, who's who's saving from who, you know? We, we don't, like, what did the Night Watcher exactly do to Teravangian? And, and this is really dangerous, too, because Teravangian is now acting as if he had, like divine purpose this manifesto he's been given like you you have to do this and this is a hundred percent for sure gonna save the world right like you're asking trevor i'm asking some of the same questions too like whoa he hasn't stopped to question this you know at all did did he does he the power he thinks he's wielding you know he's he's pre paying an awfully steep price he, he's gone all in on this he, you know, speaking from his perspective, he better be right. And I feel like he's probably wrong. Right. 
So I, I wanted to, I wanted to talk a little more specifically about like the actual levels of intelligence that they talk about in this chapter. My, my engineering spidey senses were, were, were tingling yeah. as I was reading this chapter and they start talking about like graphs and logarithmic scales. And I was, I got very excited and I, I immediately whipped up uh, an Excel spreadsheet and, and had to, you know, piece this together in my mind, like, okay, this, this is much, must be uh, what this looked like. And I want, I wanted to show that uh, with you guys and maybe kind of step you through what I think they're trying to, to convey with this. Um, if you guys have those in the, in the discord that you can look at, I'll pull up, I'll pull them up for our YouTube viewers. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see it. Yeah, definitely go, definitely go check it out if you can. So, so the first one, Trevor, uh, that you can pull up is the, the first one I posted in there. I wanted to, I wanted to show what a, a logarithmic scale looks like because they they mention that in this chapter, but they they don't do a fantastic job of of explaining what that looks like, and and maybe not everyone is is familiar with this. So this this first one is a little data plot with. Ex- dots you can you can count them i definitely put uh, 500 on there just like they talk about in the the chapter where they they plotted the last 500 days um here's here's a rough idea of kind of what they're talking about where it's got lots of lots of data points in the middle you know kind of around the the average so he's got lots of days where he's of you know average intelligence and then as you get further away from that middle there's there's less and less this is a this is a really common distribution of data that's seen in, in the real world if you collect data on just about anything you're 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 likely going to see this this shape if you you plot it it's called the normal distribution but if you look at the the bottom scale of this uh, chart you'll notice that it's on a logarithmic scale and what this means is the the different points along that that axis down there they don't go in the normal increment you'd see on a chart like one two three four or 10 20 30 40 it goes by factors of 10 so you'll notice it goes one and then 10 and then a hundred and then a thousand so as you move to the right you're going up you know exponentially faster uh as you go so if you pull up the the second one picture that i that i posted in there there's all the exact same data points but on the a regular scale so if you look down the bottom it's got a more logical progression of of numbers there so you can see why a logarithmic scale is is useful for looking at you know this kind of data that that spreads like this that second one's kind of hard to see all that data there on the the left side so if you if you look Algorithmic, it just it makes a little more sense. We we do this in in engineering a lot of times with the data that fits kind of on a on a plot like this. But then I, I was reading closer into this uh, this section, and I I was trying to come up with okay, I want I want to try and plot exactly what his what his ardent it has in her hand, right? What what was her name? I was surprised we didn't do a spell check on her name. It was a little funky. Adratagia. Uh, so that's a that's a cool name actually, by the way. I like that. So so Adrotagia has a a chart, right, of the last five hundred days of Teravangian's intelligence. And they're trying to plot it so they can see what it what it would look like. So my my third chart I came up with, you can pull that one up. Here here's my closest guess at what I think she she's actually holding uh in her hand. And 
the way it's described in the book is they they plotted intelligence from zero to ten, and it's got this hump in the middle that you see. It also they talk about how the the middle peak, the most common, is five times as, as high as the next you know out, outer uh, amount. So that the average amount, let's assume it's five, is is five times as much as the next wider ones like six your rating of slightly smart and, and slightly dumb so on this chart here if you if you count the numbers up there there's there's five times as many in each each column that that goes out um it's a little funky it's not quite as easy to to read as the other one which is why i pulled up that other one and there's not exactly 500 tick marks on on this one it's a little bit off because i had to make the numbers work but <laughs> the, you can see the the little each little tick mark on here is is one of these uh, things. I I do gotta say though, maybe, maybe someone who's a lot smarter than me on on math can can answer this for sure out there. But I think Brandon Sanderson might have made a little mistake here. the The way he describes this is not necessarily on a on a chart. For instance, he he mentions they go from zero to ten. You can't actually plot zero on a logarithmic scale. Log log zero is an indefinite number in mathematics. And so you'll notice this this chart here and the other logarithmic scale when I had they they start at one. You can't go to zero on a on a log scale. The the other thing that's a little funny about this is in the way he describes it, he describes it as increasing exponentially out from the center not up from the bottom. So on my chart here, you'll see it, it starts from, you know, one on the left side and it goes in exponentially up as you go to the right. The way it's described in this passage is exponentially as you go in either direction, which isn't quite a logarithmic scale. That would be something a little bit different. Maybe someone out there who's a little smarter on this could, could answer that for us. But this is a, a little funky and a little bit impossible to answer with the mathematics that we have. But he shot at it to, to show what this might actually look like as far as the data goes. But really, it was just I saw data and I got excited and Excel was was used. I'm enjoying look at the, looking at these graphs, especially this third one. And you made it look all uh, look all official. And it looks like you took it out of the book. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. was this like a diagram in the book that I didn't get to enjoy because I listened to the audio book? But... Now, I, I want to get as close as I possibly could to whatever she's physically, you know, holding in her her hand. And I had to make the tick marks red so you could actually, you know, see them on the the chart there. But yeah, a little weird, but super cool and nerdy. So there you go. Good stuff. Any more on Teravangian's half before Zeth shows up? I, I've been talking a lot, so I probably should let someone else go, but I do have one more thing on, on Teravangian. Go for it. So they mentioned the thrill in this chapter, which is a bit fascinating. They, When's the last time we also, heard the thrill? Right? They We talk about the thrill usually out on the, the Shattered Plains with like Adolin or Dalinar or, or somebody out there. Here... Teravangian is talking about it, but they, they're talking about it very differently. They're talking about it like, oh, the thrill was felt here. And that's like surprising to them. They're thinking, you know, oh, normally that's 
out east or, or something like that. And then they, they mentioned a name. And I actually, I'm not sure I, I got my notes a little mixed up. They mentioned two, they mentioned like Ner, Nergaul and, and Moloch. But both of those names are kind of thrown around and the, the reference is perhaps like Spren. And they mentioned like, oh, the, the Spren or Moloch is moving. You know, oh, we could we could use this to to track him, but oh, we better not idea. So this brings up all kinds of questions and ideas about what is the thrill and what is kind of the source of the th the thrill. Is this is the thrill like coming from some sort of spren being? There, I I keyed into this and and wrote down a bunch of questions to I'm sure not get answered for three more books, but. I, <laughs> I definitely noted them. This was actually one of the things that I noticed when I was rereading. I didn't remember this was in here and I, and I saw it and I was like, wow, I didn't remember that this was this early, but. I'm sure we'll find out next week. It'll be fine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it'll be solved. It'll yeah. be, I'm sure it'll be solved by the end of the book. Right. Yeah, we were yeah. like the book's almost over. He's got to tie up all these loose ends. We were so. talking what last week that there has to be some of these uh, some of these loose ends tied up, and we can't have more opened up. And here we are opening up more other ones. So, what well, can Brandon, I, I'm Sanderson. convinced Brandon Sanderson loves like putting these little fish hooks out, you know, super early, and you know, ooh, here's a little tidbit that most people aren't even going to care about or, or notice. And then I'll get around to addressing that, you know, three books from now. It seems like the more we read, the more and more we realize, oh man, that was mentioned way back in part two of Way of Kings and, you know, all, all kinds of fun stuff like that. This is probably another one of those, I would guess. All right, I'll stop talking about Teravangian and Paul can start talking about Zeth. Okay. So, um, well, okay, I actually did have one one thing to add to the Teravangian talk before we move on a little bit. It's nothing, like, super profound. I just saw a lot of similarities between... I felt like there, you could you could draw a similarity between Teravangian's, like, talk about, like, compromising his intelligence with the emotion like whenever he gains intelligence he loses emotion with it's not true for every case but overall i think you could compare it to like the whole system like what's it called hierarchy system like with light eyes and the rankings of people and dark eyes okay not perfectly but there's a lot of i guess people who are highly esteemed for I don't know, like a proper way of life and things like that, but they don't have much regard for others. And then in general, I'd say we see kind of the opposite with the dark eyes. Like, you know, it's like, I don't know, almost common folk peasants, if you will. Um, right. But having like a higher regard for each other. I think that's kind of what we've been shown throughout the books here. And I thought that was kind of similar. Nothing's too important. What is important to me is Zeth. So <laughs> I, I was really excited to what well, once he appeared. So he kind of appears and Terranging gets really scared. He's like, oh no, like 
<laughs> is something wrong? Do I like, still have the oath stone on me? Make yeah, sure I have like, that. He before. instantly like pats himself. Am down, I like, about to die? Yep. Am I dead? It's like whenever. It's like whenever you don't know if you have your keys or your phone or your wallet or something like that, you like instantly like yep. reach for your pockets to see like do I still have it? Like is everything okay? Um. So yeah, that happens, and and they end up talking some. Um, Zeph kind of confronts him about like, like, Kaladin, mm-hmm, Kaladin, and saying that there's another surge binder, um, and and uh, what is it? Uh, I'm trying to get my thoughts in order, I guess. So Teravangian mentions like Kaladin must have an honor blade, right? And to which Seth is like, oh, he like never summoned a blade. Like, why wouldn't he summon his blade? And Terrangian's kind of like, uh, like, I guess he just didn't need to or whatever. As best as I remember, that's kind of how it went. Um, and that's one of the reasons I chose accepting because I feel like that was kind of a lackluster response. Right. But it kind of was just like, brush it off and like, don't worry about it. Sweep it under the rug. Um, so that kind of started here and I was really hoping for Zeth to push more, be like, no, 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 like, I need some answers, like, because he seemed very, very upset the last time we saw him about everything, um, and him maybe being made truthless incorrectly, and I was really hoping for more there, but he kind of didn't push too hard. I'm kind of curious to hear um, Elliot's thoughts about this part. Um and some of the stuff that happened here i anything i missed i was i was very curious about that too but trevor actually answered this perhaps for me earlier on here i i was wondering the same thing i was thinking you know oh come on zeth that was a pretty lame explanation of of what just happened to you you know question that push back against that a little bit more but but trevor you mentioned that he desperately wants to believe what Teravangian is telling him because right. I, I just I, I was just realizing you know remember if 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 Kaladin is is who he seems to be a surge binder it means that Zeth's whole life has been a lie and that he's murdered hundreds thousands whatever for nothing and that terrible person that he knows he is would have had no purpose he would not have had to be that terrible person he knows he is and so he will break he, he's he's pretty broken right now but he will absolutely shatter if he has to accept the the other alternative there so he that actually makes a lot of sense that even though it's a really weak argument he desperately wants it to be true he he cried for a week in your theory wherever he was and then he he decides oh i actually i i do need answers goes to teravangian Teravangian kind of panics on the spot and says, oh, it's an honor blade? And Seth's like, right. oh, oh, okay. Goodness, yeah, like... okay, good. There, There's some interesting bits here. When, I can't remember if it's Zeth. I think it is Zeth. When, when he says this, that he, he has an honor blade, Zeth replies, one of the other seven, like... I stopped right there and was like, whoa, that there's a lot of info packed into that right yeah. there. Like, hold on a second, full stop. 
do they know where all the honor blades are or like do they know where at least three of them are and maybe the other seven are unaccounted for or or the opposite like they know yeah i i can't quite put it all together it was like wow hold on a second they know a lot more about the honor blades than than we do or we were guessing they did so now we know there's at least what eight yeah we, at least eight We've been hypothesizing previously. I don't remember what this is based on. That there's ten. We've been hypothesizing that they could be the, the, the herald the blades. blades, right? The blades of the heralds that we saw in the prelude, all the way at the beginning. I don't know that we've. We definitely haven't proven that or or seen too much evidence for that. A, a logical conclusion. So I think we're guessing there's ten. So yeah, if you if you take that assumption. But if we're if we're running with that, there's actually only nine because Talonel would have had True. his, right? Which we uh, might get to here in a second with the next chapter. But uh, there would only yeah I mean, there would only be nine. Okay, maybe I was thinking about it wrong. But Talonels, I guess, would be like accounted for. So I'm right. still kind of on the like. They're talking about seven others that they don't know about, like don't know where they are or something. So. Right. But yeah, and, and so this has me wondering, like, yeah, where are these others? Because we're assuming it's not just like yes. Zeth, and then there's seven others, and some are left out. Like, it's definitely got to be the even ten or nine or whatever. Um. Exactly, and the way that Zeth says this too also for me goes goes it, this is a point towards the whole zeth is wielding one of the the honor blades category and that when he says oh one of the other seven like you know other as opposed to this one i have right here you know that not not by any means but maybe another bit of evidence to to point towards that theory we've talked about before definitely not just like oh one of the like Exactly. The 10 or 9 honor blades or whatever, like, oh, like, there's a, one of the other ones up there. Um, I, I'm quickly trying to think of who may have one, and I feel like it's kind of a safe, like, a top guess. It would be Wit may have one. That's my, okay. my guess. I could definitely see Wit having one because, like, He's just very mystical and always fast traveling, and it would just explain a lot of things. But I don't know if it's that easy or not. Kaladin secretly has six of them. Mm-hmm. Of Whoa. course, he just hasn't told you. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, he's been waiting for the right time to use them. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, he he keeps them in the bag that he keeps the food in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Tim, Tim, what hints mattress. can we? What hints can we drag out of you, Tim, on on honor blades? Well, who do you I... think has an honor blade? Let's ask that one. Hmm. Lopin. Well, th- this is obviously this is true. The it's Lopin hidden in his other arm. Now, I will say from the rereader's perspective, coming back, um, I a, a lot of what is said here makes sense, whereas you know back. <laughs> of course it does but like even even rereading 
Um, like it wasn't until until this time rereading through that it, I stopped and thought about it. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, I see what's going on. Yeah, it's all coming together now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Paul's just over there frustrated. Like, I, nothing I, makes I, sense. <laughs> make it make I'm sense. Like, so, so, like, what about uh, the Honor Blades? And Tim's like, yeah, I can, like, you don't see it. Like, yeah, like, like, it makes sense, it makes like, sense like, to me. <laughs> yeah, like, no, I will say, isn't it obvious at this point? Like, <laughs> that, um, yeah, we've not heard anyone else talk about the Honor Blades in at least a knowing capacity other than Turvangin and Zeth. And the Parshendi, right? And the yeah, Parshendi. True. But they and, they hired Zeth, so they saw one. So anyway. Mm-hmm. Fair. Understandable. Um, and then if we if you remember back to when Turvangin first met Zeth, he spoke a Shin proverb. Um, so that, I mean, that kind of makes me think, is this something like the Shin know about this? And since they're so secluded, nobody else really knows what's going on. Is this something that just you have to be at a certain echelon in society, um, you know, running in the right groups in order to know about this? That raises some questions there. It's not what you know, it's who you know. My big hot prediction is that Venley has one. Since she's uh, like acting different in storm form, and the Parshendi do know what they are, I'm just gonna go way out on the limb and say that Venley has one. We know that Eshenai is a shard bearer, but Mm -hmm. I'm gonna say this is different, and that Venley has it, and that's why she's built different with the storm form. So, yeah, makes sense. I like it. The what? The only or sorry, one of the details we get in this chapter is Tervangian mentions Gavilar and how Gavilar uh, and Tervangian were I hesitate to say like working together but Gavilar was having these visions of uniting Roshar similar to what Dalinar is having and Teravangian knew about it? Did anybody pick this up? This was a big whoa moment for me as I was reading. I was like, wait, wait a second. Gavilar and Teravangian were, were in cahoots? What What is up with this? I, I got the same thing as you're kind of hinting at. It didn't seem like, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want to say that they were like working together necessarily or like even maybe on the same team, but they were at least talking, perhaps. They, they were and, aware of each other and doing things behind the scenes. Right. Right. And, yeah, this whole bomb drop of, wait, Gavilar was getting visions just like Dalinar was, and Teravangia knows about it? Like, wait a second. Whoa. This, this could... It's not answers. It, it's not the whole answer, but... This is a big step towards the whole, the most important words a man can say, or man can say, I forget the exact wording of that, mm-hmm. you know, clue that, that Gavilar has left. And the whole, you know, what was Gavilar about to do made the Parshendi decide, oh, got, got to have him assassinated uh, tonight. Um, 
if he was having visions, if he was seeing everything that Dalinar was seeing, is he just, you know, a little further along on that path than Dalinar? And he was, you know, about to launch the Knights Radiant or about to, you know, do you know, something to kind of bring all that back. And, and you were like, ooh, nope, can't have that. You know, stop that. This this could be a big step in helping us solve that puzzle. <laughs> when Galar died, he told Zeth to tell Dalinar to find the most important words a man can say. That's the that's the reference you're talking yes. about. And then Zeth writes it on like part of the balcony that's collapsed with Gavilar's blood. Um which side note, Zeth knows how to write. Um most most men in this world don't know how to write. Which when you're reading the prologue for the first time you don't think about it, but then thinking about it now you're like wait nobody knows how to write except for women and ardents so apparently zeth does too teravangian too on a good day mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> literally i i think my takeaway from this whole chapter was noticing that Everything Teravangian is talking about, everything that his whole diagram is about, is like the polar opposite of what we learned from Dalinar and Noadon in Way of Kings, that the the first ideal of the Knights Radiant, the whole journey before destination, life before death. What was the other one? Strength. Strength before, before weakness. I probably got those out of order, but but primarily the journey before destination bit. You know, Teravangian is so focused on ends before the means, right? He's he's justifying this horrible, horrible thing he's doing with all of the murdering of entire nations all towards this ultimate goal of, well, ultimately this is going to save mankind, therefore it's worth it. That is exactly what we learned is not okay from the way of Kings and the whole, no, that the way that the, the method of wit that you use to get to your destination is just as important, if not more than where you're going. And so I, I, I'm now putting, you know, that ideal on one end of the spectrum and Teravangian on the complete other, other end. Right. Paul, did you have something to say? I kept interrupting. Um, it wasn't anything too major. Um, I honestly don't remember. It, it, I don't have anything notable going okay. forward um, about the Tervangian. Anyone, any closing thoughts on our interludes before we talk about 76? That's pretty crazy. He, he is not all okay in the head he takes a yeah. half uh half formed response of an honor blade as complete justification to go kick back and kill dalinar this time without mm-hmm. fight trying trying to avoid kaladin i think is his his instruction i i noticed that teravangian is now terrified that zeth is gonna interact with kaladin more 
and discover the truth, right? Right. Well, joke's on him, right? We know that Kaladin no longer has his abilities, but a certain someone named Shalon does. Shalon is with Dalinar. Exactly. Shalon is right next to Dalinar. So, yeah, this maybe Shalon now could be the one to bring the full realization to Zeth about who he is, who they are, what the truth is. She's definitely better with her words, so I, I do have True. a lot of hope there um, for that. And honestly, I hadn't thought about that, but that, that would make a lot of sense. I, I would definitely bet on that happening, in all honesty. All right, just a quick side note. We have the title of our part five, which completes our Ketek between the five parts. The part one is titled A Light, followed by part two, which is Wind's Approach. Deadly is part three. The Approach is part four. And Wind's A Light is part five. So we have a we have our parabolic poem, I suppose you could I you could say with our part names i don't know if anyone was paying attention to that but i i paid attention to it i was actually going to bring it up if you didn't i had not noticed but i really appreciate it because it's actually really cool i i feel like total side note i feel like as brandon sanderson writes like that would be the hardest part honestly is coming up with these ketex like these symmetrical (laughs) Like phrases, it's get it's gotta be really challenging for it to not only be one, like be a critic, but also be like relevant. Right. So, well done, well done to Branderson Sanderson. Indeed. I've been waiting for this chapter for over a book now, because when we read when we when you read the um uh, when you when you read the chapter in the way of Kings where Amaran backstabs Kaladin and takes the shard blade, you're, I was just, I'm so angry every time I read it. I'm, I just want justice for Kaladin and it's finally coming in this chapter. Dalinar and finally sits Kaladin and Amram next to each other and says, are you a liar? I mean, he doesn't really say that, but this is, this is how he sets this up. And, challenges Amram with this shard blade and discovers that he's a liar and Kaladin is completely justified. Uh Tim, I can actually start with you. Did uh Sabariel, Roion, and Aladar are the three high princes that end up joining Dalinar out in front of the the war camps here. Do you do you keep track of these these high princes, whose alliance to who, and why it's such a big deal that Aladar is here? Yeah, so um, I, I do find the, the explanation that Aladar gives for those um, for why he comes very interesting because Roion is considered the coward. He's the one that Dalinar goes to first with this idea of the joint plateau assaults, and. Um, is turned down because he would rather hold on to what he has than risk it. 
but now he's come to a point where he's like no i want to do this i'm on like i need to throw in my lot here and then you've got sabariel who you know is he only there because shalon is hinting that there's great wealth maybe but also as has been pointed out before it's it's almost like a face that he wears of I don't care when he really does, but also to some extent, he really just doesn't care and he does things for the effect. So it's an interesting balance. Um, but then we've got Aladar, who is the um, the antithesis, you know, um, Sadius's closest ally um, who comes in. And I, I just love the, the thought of um, as Dalinar is going through and realizing that um, Aladar had fought so hard against the idea of doing this and all this stuff because he thought Dalinar might be right, but he didn't want him to be right. It's right. kind of like the, the situation with Zeth. Like, I don't want this to be right, but Zeth chooses opposite from Aladar. I just want to highlight Dalinar real quick here that as far as a number standpoint, Dalinar cannot do this by himself. And as these other high princes show up, it actually gives him the numbers where Dalinar starts thinking to himself, we can actually, we can actually do this now that now that I have Aladar and uh, uh, Sabariel here, like we actually have the numbers to do this, but he was going to do it anyway he he was already there he his army was already out of the war camp ready to march it didn't it didn't matter if sabariel and aladar were coming he was gonna go anyway which was call it stupid call it honorable whatever you want to do but i i i really love that moment when aladar shows up i i love that whole concept of dalinar has been you know, speaking the truth to these guys for a while now and trying to galvanize them into to action to actually, you know, working together. And he he's felt very defeated in that effort. He feels like no one's listening to him. We finally get to the the ultimate moment. They're gonna make this final assault and the only people that show up are Roeon, because he doesn't want to be, you know, the coward left behind. Sabariel, who's all maybe kind of doing it as a joke. Um, but then you get Aladar here coming, and what a cool moment where he's like, you know what? He doesn't quite say this this openly, but you know, your your words moved me. They they made a difference. You convinced me. And that thing, like when when you know you're right and you're trying to tell someone, you know, what's right, sometimes it just feels like no one heard you and it didn't matter. But it, it, it really can matter. It really can make a difference, even if they don't initially, you know, acknowledge that they were listening to you. Ultimately, it, it can matter. And in this instance here with, with Aladar, it did. So cool. This was a cool moment. I really liked it. Yeah. It was very cool. My initial thought was I was actually very skeptical just because um, there hasn't been a very reliable or good history with, like, trusted allies um throughout the series so far so i was i was pretty skeptical but this seems very sincere um there's kind of like 
a lot of justification put out there by all the all the people showing up, um, which made it a whole lot better. And even kind of like, yeah, it, it, Delinor, I I could be wrong. I think it kind of even mentions like, well, I don't really have that much of a choice, almost like, um, or kind of alludes to that. Um, but yeah, it it was kind of the cool like all the work that he's put in throughout our series with this trying to unite people or trying to get behind this cause um, and do some good is kind of like coming into fruition now. I really like that uh, you'd brought up Trevor that Dalinar was going to go anyway. I I never realized that before when I was reading. It just makes me think of Lord of the Rings where um, you know they've won the big battle at Minas Tirith and they decide to hope and hope beyond all hope that Frodo is actually alive. They know where he went. They know that there's really no way that he would have survived growing up against Shelob because you know, Gandalf knows that. Um, but they still act in faith and in trust that uh, you know this is the only way to win. We just have to trust that it will work. And they, you know, they go out. And they don't know until, like, the very end. They're surrounded. They're pretty sure they're all going to die. And then all of a sudden they win. Um, and this is a very, very similar thing that just reminded me of it. Kaladin comes limping out of the war camps to see his men off, all the Bridge 4 guys who are going with Dalinar. And who's he looking for? Elliot, you put this in the outline. Who who are his eyes on? I I noticed a little bit here that Kaladin's eyes are on Shalon. They are. And he has a little moment there where he's like, yeah, a little enamored with Shalon. And we had we had talked before their last episode or, or the one before about how, yeah, do we have the the makings of a love triangle here? Is this gonna be a thing? It, yep. This is definitely going to be a thing. I already know. Like, if there's anything I can know about the story as we go forward, is that Shalon and Kaladin are going to either end up together, or if something bad happens, like, there will be some mutual agreement that they both, like, love each other. Right? <laughs> and it'll, if they don't, like, it, like, live happily ever after, you know, I'm, I'm very confident in this. Very confident. So yes, I also noticed that, and it was. I almost said I'm excited. I I'm not like that invested, but I I'm just very confident that this is how it's gonna happen. Because it's been so forced the like I can't stand you like narrative. Right. No. Yeah, this portion just makes me laugh. That's all I'm gonna mm -hmm. say. <laughs> very funny. Amaram finally faces the music. Finally. Finally. Dalinar sets an entire, like, elaborate trap with this shard blade that Talonel brings into camp. So Dalinar and Elokar meet uh, Borden with, uh, with Talonel, and they Dalinar takes the shard blade and bonds it for a week. There was a couple there was a couple weeks ago 
where there was this offhand mention that Dalinar was sick for a week. No, he wasn't. He was in his quarters bonding a shard blade without anyone knowing. Once it's bound to him, he can summon it whenever he wants. So after it's bound, he goes and hides it in a chasm, lays a trap for Amaram. Amaram goes and gets it, doesn't tells Dalinar that there's no shard blade, and then wherever Amaram hides it from, Dalinar summons it back to himself as he's confronting him and holds it to Amaram's neck. And he still lets him walk away at the end of all this, but, <laughs> and Kaladin's not very happy about it, but Dalinar finally believes Kaladin and Amaram is a liar. This was big. This, this felt like good, like you said, vindication of, mm, yeah, Amram, Amram got what was, was coming to him here. And, and, and just the justification and the, the, the satisfaction that Dalinar, not only did Dalinar just now listen to Kaladin, he was listening to him the whole time. Like this took a little while to set up this little sting operation on, on Amram. And so Dalinar's had this kind of in the works for a while where he, he must have, perhaps when Kaladin first mentioned it to him, started to think, "Oh, okay, let's let's test Amram. Let's let's see. Let's let's put this to see what he'll do." So, so Dalinar wasn't just ignoring Kaladin or brushing it off. He he really did listen, which that that felt good because it felt bad when when Dalinar was was siding with Amram and not listening to Kaladin. Now we know that wasn't true, and it gives us a a timeline or at least a rough idea of when um, what's-his-face showed up at Kolinar. Um, based on the amount of time it probably would have taken them to come over. and um, Just knowing it, it was relatively recent. It's not like it happened years and years ago. I do have a question for you guys. What do we know about bonding shard blades? We know it takes like roughly a week or a little over um, to like fully bond a shard blade. But when it does infect, it's in your eyes light. Um, um, and you and... can like loan a shard blade, kind of. Okay. But. We, we also know, and I'm I'm racking my brains trying to remember where this was, but but we also know, or it was hinted at somewhere, that bonding a shard blade has to do with the gemstone that's on the blade itself. I cannot remember where that was. Okay, I was I was fishing like touch the gemstone or something like that, but yeah. Don't they talk about it some whenever Adolin is like talking to his shard blade before his duel? I could it's be I could be wrong. Area, Maybe, yeah. If I remember correctly. Um but uh you know, with what we have here in the in the outline of um honor honor blades, Elliot over here has is Dalinar now wielding an honor blade? 
um, and a question I have for you guys because I don't remember is as he's holding it out, like, do, do is there anything mentioned about shard or a, a gemstone or anything like that um, on his blade? Or specifically not mentioned. Just trying to get some more inform information to try and figure out, like what is what is going on here. What kind of a, a blade does Dalinar have? Yeah, you're you're jumping to the the big question that I have now. Kind of at the end of this chapter is, all right, we've trapped Amaram. Dalinar now has a shard blade. He's been without one for a while, right? Because he, his old shard blade, Sadius has from that epic scene back in Way of Kings. So <laughs> Dalinar's back in the realm of of shard bearer. But yeah, kind of following the path of this blade. This is the shard blade that came from, who we're assuming is the Herald Talonel. We've kind of also assumed that honor blades are the original ten swords of the heralds therefore is this blade an honor blade therefore is dalinar now an honor blade bearer therefore you can keep going even further like is dalinar now going to get you know powers we we just had this scene with teravangian where he's you know using an honor blade to explain kaladin's powers and so is dalinar now on the verge of getting these these powers yeah all all big questions and Tim, you make an interesting reference there to like the blade itself. I, you're making me want to go back and and read this in more more detail because I'm not sure that I noticed what what maybe you're you're hinting at. Yeah, just trying to get a figure out from from what we have. Like, can we figure out what is going on? Um, and and some more about that. Like, can we get hints from different things? Well, and then there's the question, if you're bonding a honor blade, but you don't know it's an honor blade, is it just going to give you the powers and suddenly you'll figure it out? Or do you have to know about it ahead of time and be looking for those powers to get it, it from the blade? You know. Well, you just suddenly take a sharp intake of breath and you're glowing. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of questions to be answered there. My guess is that... Yes, it is the case. Like this is an honor blade, and Dalinar's gonna grow these, like develop these powers because the next book is Dalinar's book, right? And so my guess is that we're not really gonna see, but it's things it, with it now. It's but. titled Oathbringer, which is Sadius's sword, not Dalinar's sword. So true, but it like is Dalinar's book, right? It is like, Dalinar's book. I will okay. spoil that much for you. I'm just saying, like, it's going to be, like, we're going to see probably more from Dalinar or more maybe from his past, maybe, like, all around um, and stuff. So my guess is that something will happen and he will become, in some way, incorporated with the Knight's Radiant through this. Or maybe it could be, like, if you have an Honor Blade, then, I don't know, maybe he'll end up getting a sprint. I'm hoping we'll find that answer, get, like, answers to lots of these questions with with Oathbringer. I doubt we're gonna see that now. Unless there's a like a huge unveiling. We haven't really had our next like huge like uh, I'm sure there's gonna be a lot more to happen in part five. Uh, we're only one chapter into it. So it's possible that happens now, but my guess is the next book will will like make that clear. 
I I'm fully on that train with you, Paul. And the reason why is also at the end of this chapter, Dalinar makes a rather strange mention about he says putting this shard blade feels wrong. And and he doesn't give any more explanation than that. He just kind of leaves it at that. It's it's kind of like wait a second. We he's been a shard bearer before. He should be very used to what a shard blade is like. Does he think this one feels wrong? Is it just because it's different? Maybe this is an honor blade, you know, as opposed to uh, a shard blade he's seen before. Or is this, you know, more of like the whole Kaladin couldn't touch a shard blade when he had Sill around sort of thing? Is 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 Downer getting those kinds of feelings from this blade now? So I I think things are definitely hinting towards Dalinar's on that path somehow. We also have a, an elephant in the room. Uh, Moash is now the head guard of Elokar's guard while everyone's away. <laughs> and Kaladin is staying in the war camps, but he's not the most mobile uh, person at the moment. And we've he's kind of been back and forth about the whole Elokar Moash thing for quite a quite a bit now. He's been supportive of Moash, but then he's also seen down on our Elokar side, and yeah. So we 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 don't know what Kaladin's gonna do, but Moash is a full shard bearer, shard blade, shard plate in charge of Elokar's guard, and he wants to kill him. And everyone else but injured Kaladin is gone. Yeah. Yep. This this is bad news if your name is Elokar. <laughs> yep. Yes, Paul? I would hate to be Elokar right about now. Well, I wouldn't that's like to be him at any point, but... Yeah, that's, that's true. Personal preference. Yeah, and apparently his wife is wrecking the kingdom back behind him. Not yeah, great. He's got a lot of things on his plate at the moment. A literal wrecking ball. I I no, feel I, so, do find it, I feel sorry for Alucard personally, but go ahead, Tim. We find it interesting from Sadius's perspective that he he is willing to go and murder Alucard. He is. Uh, he does mention that to his wife. But he just decides that uh, I don't really need to do that. Everyone's they're gonna die anyway. But like that that went to a new level. Um Dalinar has always assumed they're working together to protect Elokar and the kingdom. But maybe maybe Sadius has some, some other um ulterior motives. I mean, obviously we know he's a dirtbag and the <laughs> You know, second, uh, second level antagonist from the Way of Kings behind Shalom, but um, no, nah, yeah, Reese I'll, is I'll laugh at that, Tim. That was funny. <laughs> Paul, Thank Paul's you. just completely so un, Paul's just ben completely ben. unfazed and uh, entirely. He's making fun of you, Paul. You're supposed to laugh. Uh huh. 
cool. I'm <laughs> laughing at my own jokes. Okay. I'll laugh. Uh-huh. There it was. There we go. All right, Tim. Sorry to interrupt you. Keep going. No, you're good. I, I'm done. That's... I was just wanting to make you guys think some more. That way I don't have to. That's usually my that's job what, on the podcast. That's why I'm happy I have Elliot here. It's like, what do you think about this? And then it's like, all right, there's the next 30 minutes of our podcast. And I'm good to go. <laughs> like, <laughs> You're just sitting there nodding and smiling. Like, and yep. So profound. It, it, it is very profound. Like all the stuff with the graphs and everything today is very cool. And I'm actually really curious to see if if anyone who watches this has more insight on the, the math part of it. Cause, yeah, me too. Um, me too. I, I you, myself you am... Can... If you can figure that out better than I did, let it, let us know for sure. For sure. Uh, I myself am not an engineer, but I am very like intrigued by the, like the mathematical logistical side of uh, all the stuff we go through. So very fun. Alrighty. Any more closing thoughts on episode 43? We're into part five of Words of Radiance. The end of the book is coming up. It's going to be fun. This is, I feel like we, we've hit some some big moments already, but I I feel like something pretty massive is still yet to come, so I'm, I'm not willing to relax just yet. I think it's coming. All right. With that, we will sign off and reconvene next week. Thanks for joining us this week, Tim. And thanks for joining me, as always, uh, Paul and Elliot. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Till we meet again.